I find it a little difficult to say what the subject matter of this seminar is going to be because it's too fundamental to give it a title. I'm going to talk about what there is. Now, the first thing, though, that we have to do is to get our perspectives with some background about the basic ideas which, as Westerners living today in the United States, influence our everyday common sense, our fundamental notions about what life is about. And there are historical origins for this, which influence us more strongly than most people realize. Ideas of the world, which are built into the very nature of the language we use, and of our ideas of logic, and of what makes sense altogether. And these basic ideas I call myth, not using the word myth to mean simply something untrue, but to use the word myth in a more powerful sense. A myth is an image in terms of which we try to make sense of the world. Now, for example, a myth in, in a way is a metaphor. If uh, you want to explain electricity to someone who doesn't know anything about electricity, you say, well, you talk about an electric current. Now, the word current is borrowed from rivers. It's borrowed from hydraulics. And so you explain electricity in terms of water. Now, electricity is not water, it behaves actually in a different way, but there are some ways in which the behavior of water is like the behavior of electricity. And so you explain it in terms of water. Or if you're an astronomer and you want to explain to people what you mean by an expanding universe and curved space, you say, well, it's as if you had a black balloon, and there are white dots on the black balloon, and those dots represent galaxies. And as you blow the balloon up, uniformly, all of them grow and grow farther apart. But you're using an analogy. The, the actual universe is not a balloon with white dots on it. So in the same way, we use these sort of images to try and make sense of the world. And we at present are living under the influence of two very powerful images, which are, in the present state of scientific knowledge, inadequate. And one of our major problems today is to find an adequate, satisfying image of the world. Well, that's what I'm going to talk about. And I'm going to go further than that. Uh, not only what image of the world to have, but how we can get our sensations and our feelings in accordance with the most sensible image of the world that we can manage to conceive. All right, now. The two images which we have been working under for 2,000 years and maybe more are what I would uh, call two models of the universe. And the first is called the ceramic model and the second, the fully automatic model. The ceramic model of the universe is based on the book of Genesis, from which Judaism, Islam and Christianity derive their basic picture of the world. And the image of the world in the book of Genesis is that the world is an artifact. 
it is made. As a potter takes clay and forms pots out of it, or as a carpenter takes wood and makes tables and chairs out of it. Don't forget, Jesus is the son of a carpenter, and also the son of God. So the image of God and of the world is based on the idea of God as a technician, potter, carpenter, architect, who has in mind a plan and who fashions the universe in accordance with that plan. So basic to this image of the world is the notion, you see, that the world consists of stuff, basically. Primordial matter, substance, stuff, as pots are made of clay. Now, clay by itself has no intelligence. Clay does not of itself become a pot, although a good potter may think otherwise. Because if you were a really good potter, you don't impose your will on the clay. You ask any given lump of clay what it wants to become, and you help it to do that. And then you become a genius. But the ordinary idea I'm talking about is that simply, clay is unintelligent, it's just stuff. And the potter imposes his will on it, and makes it become whatever he wants. And so in the book of Genesis, the Lord God creates Adam out of the dust of the earth. In other words, he makes a clay figurine and then he breathes into it and it becomes alive because the clay becomes in form. By itself it is formless, it has no intelligence and therefore it requires an external intelligence and an external energy to bring it to life and to put some sense into it. And so in this way uh, we inherit a conception of ourselves as being artifacts, as being made. And it is perfectly natural in our culture for a child to ask its mother, how was I made? Or who made me? And this is a very, very powerful idea. But for example, it is not shared by the Chinese or by the Hindus. A Chinese child would not ask its mother, how was I made? Chinese child might ask its mother, how did I grow? Which is an entirely different procedure from making. You see, when you make something, you put it together, you arrange parts, or you work from the outside to the in, as a, as a sculptor works on a stone, or as the potter works on clay. But when you watch something growing, it works in exactly the opposite direction works from the inside to the outside. It expands, it burgeons, it blossoms, and it happens all over itself at once. In other words, it, the, the, the original simple form, say, of a, of a living cell in the womb, progressively complicates itself. And that's the growing process, and it's quite different. We have thought historically, you see, of the world as something made in, the, in the, the idea being that trees, for example, are constructions. 
just as tables and houses are constructions. And so there is, for that reason, a fundamental difference between the maid and the maker. And this image, this ceramic model of the universe, originated in cultures where the form of government was monarchical. And where, therefore, the maker of the universe was conceived also at the same time in the image of the king of the universe. King of kings, lord of lords, the only ruler of princes, who dost from thy throne behold all dwellers upon earth. I'm quoting the Book of Common Prayer. And so, all those people who are oriented to the universe in that way feel related to basic reality as a subject to a king. And so they are on very, very humble terms in relation to whatever it is that works all this thing. I find it odd in the United States that people who are citizens of a republic have a monarchical theory of the universe. Because we are carrying over from the very ancient Near Eastern cultures the notion that the Lord of the Universe must be respected in a certain way. People kneel, people bow, people prostrate themselves. Because the, and you know what the reason for all that is, that nobody is more frightened of everybody else than a tyrant. He sits with his back to the wall, and his guards on either side of him. And he has you face downwards on the ground because you can't use weapons that way. When you come into his presence, you don't stand up and face him because you might attack. And he has reason to fear that you might because he's ruling you all. And the man who rules you all is the biggest crook in the bunch. Because he's the one who succeeded in crime. The other people are pushed aside because they are the criminals, the people we lock up in jail, are simply the people who, who didn't make it. <laughs> so naturally, uh, the real boss sits with his back to the wall and his henchmen on either side of him. And so when you design a church, what does it look like? Catholic church with the altar as it used to be. It's changing now because the Catholic religion is changing. But the Catholic church has the altar with its back to the wall at the east end of the church. And uh, there the altar is the throne. The priest is the chief vizier of the court. And he is making obeisance to the throne in front. But there is the throne of God, the altar. And uh, all the people are facing it and kneeling down. And a great Catholic cathedral is called a basilica, from the Greek basilius, which means king. So a basilica is the house of a king. And the ritual of the Catholic Church is based on the court rituals of Byzantium. The Protestant Church is a little different, but basically the same. The furniture of a Protestant Church is based on a judicial courthouse. The pulpit. The judge, in a, the judge in an American court wears a black robe. He wears exactly the same dress as a Protestant minister. 
and everybody sits in these boxes. Like there's a jury box, there's a box for the judge, there's a box for this, the box for that, and those are the pews in an ordinary kind of colonial type Protestant church. So both these uh, kinds of churches, which have an autocratic view of the nature of the universe, decorate themselves, are architecturally constructed in accordance with political images of the universe. One is the king and the other is the judge, your honor. There's sense in this. Uh, when in the court you have to refer to the judge as your honor, it stops the people engaged in litig litigation from losing their tempers and getting rude. There's a certain sense to that. But when you want to apply that image to the universe itself, to the very nature of life, uh, it has limitations. For one thing, the idea of a difference between matter and spirit. This idea doesn't work anymore. Long, long ago, physicists stopped asking the question, what is matter? They began that way. They wanted to know what is the fundamental substance of the world. And the more they asked that question, the more they realized they couldn't answer it. Because if you're going to say what matter is, you've got to describe it in terms of behavior. That is to say, in terms of form, in terms of pattern. You tell what it does. You describe its small, the smallest shapes of it that you can see. Do you, do you see what happens? You look, say, at a piece of stone, and you want to say, well, what is this piece of stone made of? Well, you take your microscope, and you look at it, and instead of just this uh, block of stuff, you see ever so many tinier shapes, little crystals. So you say, fine, so far so good. Now, what are these crystals made of? And you take a more powerful instrument and you find that they are made of molecules. And then you take still more powerful instruments to find out what the molecules are made of and you begin to describe atoms, electrons, protons, mesons, all sorts of sub-nuclear particles. But you never, never arrive at the basic stuff. Because there isn't any. What happens is this. Stuff is a word for the world as it looks when our eyes are out of focus. Fuzzy. Stuff, the idea of stuff is that it's undifferentiated as some kind of a goo. Hmm? And when your eyes are not in sharp focus, everything looks fuzzy. When you get your eyes into focus, you see a form, you see a pattern. But when you want to change the level of magnification and go in closer and closer and closer, you get fuzzy again before you get clear. So every time you get fuzzy, you go through a, a, a uh, thinking there's a, some kind of stuff there. But when you get clear, you see a shape. And so all that we can talk about 
is patterns. We never, never can talk about the stuff of which these patterns is supposed to be made because you don't really have to suppose that there is any. It's enough to talk about the world in terms of pattern. It describes anything that can be described. You don't really then have to suppose that there is some stuff which constitutes the essence of the pattern in the same way that clay constitutes the essence of pots. Clay, and, and so for this reason, you don't really have to suppose that the world is some kind of helpless, passive, unintelligent junk which an outside agency has to inform and make it into intelligent shapes. So the picture of the world in the most sophisticated physics of today is not formed stuff, potted clay, but pattern. A self-moving, self-designing pattern. A dance. And we haven't yet, our common sense as individuals hasn't yet caught up with it. Well now, uh, in the course of time, in the evolution of Western thought, the ceramic image of the world ran into trouble and changed into what I call the fully automatic model or image of the world. In other words, Western science was based on the idea that there are laws of nature. And it got that idea from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. That, in other words, the potter, the maker of the world, in the beginning of things, laid down the laws. And the, the law of God, which is also the law of nature, it's called Logos. And uh, in Christianity, the Logos is the second person of the Trinity, incarnate as Jesus Christ, who thereby is the perfect exemplar of the divine law. So we have tended to think of all natural phenomena as responding to laws, as if, in other words, the laws of the world were like the rails on which a streetcar or a tram or a train runs. And these things exist in a certain way, and all events respond to these laws. You know that limerick, there was a young man who said, Damn, for it certainly seems that I am a creature that moves in determinate rules. I'm not even a bus, I'm a tram. <laughs> so, uh, here's this idea that there's a kind of a plan, and everything responds and obeys that plan. Well, in the 18th century, Western intellectuals began to suspect this idea. And what they suspected is whether there is a lawmaker, whether there is an architect of the universe. And they found out, or they reasoned, that you don't have to suppose that there is. Why? Because the hypothesis of God does not help us to make any predictions. 
nor does it, uh, in other words, let's put it this way. If the business of science is to make predictions about what's going to happen, science is essentially prophecy. What's going to happen? By studying the behavior of the past and describing it carefully, we can make predictions about what's going to happen in the future. That's really the whole of science. And to do this, and to make successful predictions, you do not need God as a hypothesis. Because it makes no difference to anything. If you say everything is controlled by God, everything is governed by God, that doesn't make any difference to your prediction of what's going to happen. And so what they did was simply drop that hypothesis. But they kept the hypothesis of law. Because if you can predict, if you can study the past, and describe how things have behaved, and you've got some regularities in the behavior of the universe, you call that law. Although, it may not be law in the ordinary sense of the word, it's simply regularity. And so, they, what they did was they got rid of the lawmaker and kept the law. So they conceive the universe in terms of a mechanism. Something, in other words, that is functioning according to regular clock-like mechanical principles. Newton's whole image of the world is based on billiards. The atoms are billiard balls and they bang each other around. And so your behavior, you, every, every individual therefore is defined as a very, very complex arrangement of billiard balls being banged around by everything else. And so behind the fully automatic model of the universe is the notion that reality itself is, to use the favorite term of 19th century scientists, blind energy. In say the, the metaphysics of Ernst Haeckel and T.H. Huxley, the world is basically nothing but uh, energy. Blind, unintelligent force. And likewise, in parallel to this, in the philosophy of Freud, the basic psychological energy is libido, which is blind lust. And it is only a fluke. It is only as a result of uh, pure chances that resulting from the exuberance of this energy. There are people with values, with reason, with languages, with cultures, and with love. Just a fluke. Like, you know, 1,000 monkeys typing 1,000 typewriters for a million years will eventually type the Encyclopedia Britannica. And, of course, the moment they stop typing the Encyclopedia Britannica, they will relapse into nonsense. And so, in order that that shall not happen, because you and I are flukes in this cosmos, and we like our way of life, we like being human, if we want to keep it, say these people, we've got to fight nature, because it will turn us back into nonsense the moment we let it. So we've got to impose our will upon this world as if we were something completely alien from outside. So we get a culture based on the idea of war between man and We talk about the conquest of space, the 
conquest of Everest. And the great symbols of our culture are the rocket and the bulldozer. The rocket. You know, compensation for the sexually inadequate male. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so we're going to conquer space. You know, we're in space already, way out. If anybody cared to be sensitive and let what's outside space come to you, you can if your eyes are clear enough. Aided by telescopes, aided by uh, radio astronomy, aided by all the kind of sensitive instruments we can devise. We are as far out in space as we're ever going to get. But, uh, you know, sensitivity isn't the pitch, in, in, especially in the WASP culture of the United States. We define manliness in terms of aggression, you see, because we are not, we're a little bit frightened as to whether we are really men. And so we put on this great show of being a tough guy. Uh, it's completely unnecessary. Uh, it, it, you know, if you have what it takes, you don't need to put on that show. And. Uh, you don't need to beat nature into submission. Why be hostile to nature? Because after all, you are a symptom of nature. You, as a human being, you grow out of this physical universe in just exactly the same way that an apple grows off an apple tree. So let's say the tree which grows apples is a tree which apples, using apples as a verb. And a world in which human beings arrive is a world that peoples. So the existence of people is symptomatic of the kind of universe we live in. Just as spots on somebody's skin are symptomatic of chickenpox. Just as hair on a head is symptomatic of what's going on in the organism. But we have been brought up by reason of our two great myths, the ceramic and the fully automatic not to feel that we belong in the world. So our popular speech reflects it. We say, I came into this world. You didn't, you came out of it. We say, face facts. We talk about encounters with reality. As if it was a head-on meeting of completely alien agencies. And the average person has the sensation that he is a somewhat that exists inside a bag of skin the center of consciousness, which looks out at this thing and what the hell is it going to do to me? You see? Uh, I recognize you, you kind of look like me, and uh, I've seen myself in a mirror, and uh, you, you look like you might be people. <laughs> so maybe you're intelligent, maybe you can love too. And uh, maybe perhaps you're all right, some of you are anyway. You've got the right color of skin, or you have the right religion, or whatever it is, you're okay. But there are all those people over in Asia, Africa, and they may not really be people. When you want to destroy someone, you always define them as unpeople. So, uh, but we have this hostility to the external world because of the superstition, the myth, the absolutely unfounded theory that you yourself exist only inside your skin. Now, I want to propose another idea altogether. You know, there are astronomers 
there's a, two great theories going on in astronomy about the origination of the universe. One is called the explosion theory and the other is called the steady state theory. The steady state people say there never was a time when the world began. It's always uh, expanding, yes, but always as a result of free hydrogen in space with the free hydrogen coagulates and makes new galaxies. But the other people say there was a primordial explosion. Enormous bang millions of years ago, billions of years ago, which flung all the galaxies into space. Well, let's take that just for the sake of argument and say that was the way it happened. It's like uh, you took a bottle of ink and you threw it at a wall. Smash, and all that ink spreads. And in the middle, it's dense, isn't it? And as it gets out on the edge, the little droplets are finer and finer and make more complicated patterns. So in the same way, there was a big bang in the beginning of things, and it spread. And you and I, sitting here in this room, as complicated human beings, are way, way out on the fringe of that bang. We're the complicated little patterns on the end of it. Very interesting. But so we define ourselves as being only that. If you think that you are only inside your skin, you define yourself as one very complicated little curly cube, way out on the edge of that explosion, way out in space and way out in time. Billions of years ago, you were a big bang. Now you're a complicated human being. And then we cut ourselves off like this and don't feel that we are still the big bang. But you are. Depends how you define yourself. You are actually, if, if this is the way things started, if there was a Big Bang in the beginning, you're not something that is a result of the Big Bang. You're not something that uh, is a sort of puppet on the end of the process. You are still the process. You are the Big Bang, the original force of the universe, coming on as whoever you are. See, when I meet you, I see not just what you define yourself as, Mr. So-and-so, Miss So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so. I see every one of you as the primordial energy of the universe coming on at me in this particular way. I know I'm that too. But we've learned to define ourselves as separate from So the one of the, what I would call a kind of a basic problem we've got to go through first is to understand that there are no such things as things. That is to say separate things or separate events. That that is only a way of talking. And if you can understand this, you're going to have no further problems. <laughs> I once asked a group of high school children, what do you mean by a thing? And first of all, they gave me all sorts of synonyms. They said it's an object, which is simply another word for a thing. It doesn't tell you anything about what you mean by a thing. Finally, a very smart girl from Italy who was in the group said a thing is a noun. And she was quite right. A noun isn't a part of nature, it's a part of speech. There are no nouns in the physical world. There are no separate things in the physical world either. 
See, the physical world is wiggling. It's something like this. Maybe that's a cloud. The clouds, mountains, trees, people are all wiggling. And uh, only when human beings get working at things, they build buildings in straight lines and try and make out that the world isn't really wiggly. But here are we sitting in this room all built on straight lines, but each one of us is as wiggly as all get out. Now then, when you, when you uh, want to get control of something that wiggles, it's pretty difficult, isn't it? You try and pick up a fish in your hands and the fish is wiggly and it slips out. What do you do to get hold of the fish? You use a net. And so the, the net is the basic thing we have for getting hold of the wiggly world. So if you want to get hold of this wiggle, you've got to put a net over it. You see? Now what's going to happen? A net is something regular. And I can number the holes in a net. So many so holes up, so many holes across. And if I can number these holes, I can count exactly where each wiggle is in terms of a hole in that net. And that's the beginning of calculus, the art of measuring the world. But in order to do that, I've got to break up the wiggle into bits. And I've got to call this a specific bit, and this the next bit of the wiggle, and this the next bit, and this the next bit of the wiggle. And so these bits are things or events. Bits of wiggles, which I mark out in order to talk about the wiggle in order to measure it, and therefore in order to control it. But in nature, in fact, in the physical world, the wiggle isn't bitted. Like you don't get a cut-up fryer out of an egg. But you have to cut the chicken up in order to eat it. You bite it. But it doesn't come bitten. So the world doesn't come thing. It doesn't come evented. You and I are all as much continuous with the physical universe as a wave is continuous with the ocean. The ocean waves and the universe peoples. And as the wave, I wave at you and say, you, the world is waving at you, at me with you. And saying, uh, hi, I'm here. But we, our consciousness, the way we feel and sense our existence, being based on a myth that we are made that we are parts, that we are things. Our consciousness has been influenced so that each one of us does not feel that. We feel we have been hypnotized, literally hypnotized by social convention into feeling and sensing that we exist only inside our skins. That we are not the original bang, but just something out on the end of it. And therefore we are scared stiff. My wave is going to disappear, and I'm going to die, and that would be awful. We've got a mythology going now, which is uh, Father Maskell put it, we're nothing but something that happens between the maternity ward and the crematorium. And that's it. And therefore, everybody feels unhappy and miserable. Now, this is what people really believe today. You may go to church, you may say you believe in this, that, and the other, but you don't. Even Jehovah's Witnesses, who are the most fundamentalist fundamentalists,
they are polite when they come round and knock at the door. <laughs> but if you really believed in Christianity, you'd be screaming in the streets. But nobody does. You'd be taking full-page ads in the paper every day. You'd have the most terrifying television programs. The churches would be going out of their minds if they really believe what they teach. But they don't. They hope, they, they think they ought to believe what they teach. They believe they should believe, but they don't believe it. Because what we really believe is the fully automatic model. And that is our basic, plausible common sense. You are a fluke. You are a separate event. And you run from the maternity ward to the crematorium, and that's it, baby. Now, why does anybody think that way? There's no reason to, because it isn't even scientific. It's just a myth. And it's invented by people who wanted to feel a certain way. They want to play a certain game. See, the game of God got, in, got embarrassing. Uh, the, the idea of God as the potter, the architect of the universe, is, is, is good. It makes you feel that life is, after all, important. There is someone who cares. It has meaning, it has sense, and you are valuable in the eyes of the Father. But after a while, it gets embarrassing. And you realize that everything you do is being watched by God. He knows your tiniest, inmost feelings and thoughts, and you say after a while, quit bugging me. <laughs> I don't want you around. So you become an atheist. Just to get rid of it. Then, then you feel terrible after that because uh, you got rid of God, but that means you got rid of yourself. You're just nothing but a machine. And your idea that you're a machine is just a machine too. So if you're a smart kid, you commit suicide. Camus said there is only really one serious philosophical question whether or not to commit suicide. I think there are four or five serious philosophical questions. The first one is, who started it? The second is, are we going to make it? The third is, where are we going to put it? The fourth is, who's going to clean up? And the fifth, is it serious? <laughs> but, but still, uh, should you or not commit suicide? This is a good question. Why go on? And you only go on if the game is worth the count. Now the universe has been going on for an incredible long time. And so really, uh, a, a satisfactory theory of the universe has to be one that's worth betting on. That's a very, it seems to me, absolutely elementary comment. If you, if you make a theory of the universe which isn't worth betting on, why bother? Just commit suicide. But if you want to go on playing the game, you've got to have an optimal theory for playing the game. Otherwise, there's no point in it. But the people who coined the fully automatic theory of the universe were playing a very funny game. What they wanted to say was this. All you people who believe in religion, old ladies and wishful things. You've got a big daddy up there and you want a comfort and thing, but life is rough. 
Life is tough, and uh, success goes to the most hard-headed people. That was a very convenient theory when the European-American world was colonizing the natives everywhere else. Said, we are the end product of evolution, and uh, we are tough. See? I'm a big, strong guy because I face facts, and life is just a bunch of junk, and I'm going to impose my will on it. And I'm real hard. See, that's the way of flattering yourself. So, uh, it has become academically plausible, fashionable, that this is the way the world works. In academic circles, no other theory of the world than the fully automatic model is respectable. Because if you're an academic person, you've got to be an intellectually tough person. You've got to be prickly. See, there are basically two kinds of philosophy. One's called prickles, the other's called goo. And uh, prickly people are precise, rigorous, logical, like everything chopped up and clear. Goo people like it vague. So for example, in physics, prickly people believe that the ultimate constituents of matter are particles. Goo people believe it's waves. And uh, in, in uh, philosophy, prickly people are logical positivists and goo people are idealists. And they're always arguing with each other. And what they don't realize is that they, neither one can take his position without the other person. Because you wouldn't know you advocated prickles unless there was somebody else advocating goo. You wouldn't know what a prickle was unless you knew what goo was. Because life is not either prickles or goo, it's gooey prickles and prickly goo. And they go together, like back and front, male and female. And that's the answer to philosophy. See, I'm a philosopher, and I'm not going to argue very much, because if you don't argue with me, I don't know what I think. So if we argue, I say thank you, because going to the courtesy of your taking a different point of view, I understand what I mean, so I can't get rid of you. But however, you see, this, this, this whole idea that the universe is just nothing at all but uh, unintelligent force playing around, not even enjoying it, is a put-down theory of the world. People who had a, an advantage to make a game to play by putting it down and making out that because they put the world down, they were a superior kind of people. So... Uh, that just won't do. Uh, we've had it. Because if, if you seriously go along with this idea of the world, you're what is technically called alienated. You feel hostile to the world. You feel that the world is a trap. It is a, a mechanism. It's electronic and neurological uh, mechanisms into which you somehow got caught. And you, poor thing, have to put up with being in a body that's falling apart and uh, that gets cancer, that gets uh, uh, the great Siberian itch, and uh, it's just terrible. And these mechanics, doctors, are trying to help you out, but they really can't succeed in the end. And you're just going to fall apart, and it's a grim business, and it's too bad. So if you think that that's the way things are,
you may as well commit suicide right now. Unless you say, well, I damn. Because there really, after all, there might be eternal damnation in the back of the thing if I did that. Or uh, then I identify with my children or something, and I think of them going on without me and uh, nobody to support them. Because if I do go on in this frame of mind and continue to support them, I shall merely teach them to be like I am. And they'll go on dragging it out to support their children, and they won't enjoy it. And they'll be afraid to commit suicide, and so will their children. They all learn the same lesson. So you see, uh, all I'm trying to say is that the basic common sense about the nature of the world is influencing most people in the United States today. The fully automatic model is simply a myth. If you want to say that the idea of God the Father with his white beard on the golden throne is a myth, in the bad sense of the word myth, so is this other one. It's just as phony and has just as little to support it as being the true state of affairs. Wow. Let's get this clear. Um, if there is any such thing at all as intelligence and love and beauty, well, you found it in other people. In other words, it exists in us as human beings. And as I said, if it is there in us, it is symptomatic of the scheme of things. We are as symptomatic of the scheme of things as the apples are symptomatic of the apple tree or the rose of the rose bush. The earth is not a big rock infested with living organisms any more than your skeleton is bones infested with cells. The Earth is geological, yes, but this geological entity grows people. And our existence on the Earth is a symptom of the solar system and its balances, as much as the solar system in turn is a symptom of our galaxy. And our galaxy in its turn is a symptom of the whole company of galaxies. Goodness only knows what that's in. But you see, when as a scientist you describe the behavior of a living organism, you try to say what a person does. It's the only way in which you can describe what a person is. Describe what they do then you find out that in making this description, you cannot confine yourself to what happens inside the skin. In other words, you can't talk about a person walking unless you start describing the floor. Because when I walk, I don't just dangle my legs in empty space. I move in relationship to a room. And so in order to describe what I'm doing when I'm walking, I have to describe the room. I have to describe the territory. So in, in, in de describing my talking at the moment, I can't describe this just as a thing in itself because I'm talking to you. And so what I'm doing at the moment 
is not completely described unless your being here is described also. So if that is necessary, if in other words, in order to describe my behavior, I have to describe your behavior and the behavior of the environment, it means that we've really got one system of behavior. That what I am involves what you are. I don't know who I am unless I know who you are. And you don't know who you are unless you know who I am. There was a wise rabbi once said, if I am I because you are you, and you are you because I am I, then I am not I and you are not you. In other words, we are not separate. We define each other. We're all backs and fronts to each other. You know, uh, you can't, for example, have two sticks. You lean two sticks against each other and they stand up because they support each other. Take one away and the other falls. Or you know, ba Ballantine beer trademark, also a symbol of the Holy Trinity, where there are three, three interlocked rings. If you pull one out, the other two separate. They interdepend. And so in exactly that way, we and our environment and all of us and each other are interdependent systems. We know who we are in terms of other people. We all lock together. And this is, again and again, the serious scientific description of how things happen. And uh, to such an extent that they, any good scientist knows, therefore, what you call the external world is as much you as your own body. Your skin doesn't separate you from the world, it's a bridge through which the external world flows into you and you flow into it. Just for example as a whirlpool in water, you could say because you have a skin you have a definite shape, you have a definite form. Right? Here is a, a flow of water and it suddenly it does a whirlpool. And then it goes on. The whirlpool is a definite form, but no water stays put in it. The whirlpool is something the stream is doing. And exactly the same way, the whole universe is doing each one of us. And I see you today, and I uh, recognize you tomorrow, just as I would recognize a whirlpool in a stream. I'd say, oh yes, I've seen that whirlpool before. It's just near so-and-so's house on the edge of the river. It's always there. So in the same way, when I meet you tomorrow, I recognize you, you're the same whirlpool you were yesterday. But you're moving. The whole world is moving through you. All the cosmic rays, all the food you're eating, the stream of steaks and milk and uh, eggs and uh, uh, everything is just flowing right through you. When you're wiggling the same way, the world is wiggling, the stream is wiggling you. And the problem is, you see, we haven't been to feel that way. The myths underlying our culture and underlying our common sense have not taught us to feel identical with the universe, but only parts of it, only in it, only confronting it, aliens. And we are, I think, quite urgent in need of coming to feel that we are the eternal universe, each one of us. Otherwise, we're going to go out of our heads. We're going to commit suicide. 
collectively with courtesy of H bombs. And uh, all right, supposing we do, uh, well, that will be that, and it'll be life making experiments on other galaxies. Maybe they'll find a better game. I wonder if it's ever struck you how curious a thing it is that most of the things that we experience we regard as things that happen to us which we ourselves do not originate which are events expressing some sort of power or activity that is external to ourselves and if you consider that you realize that what you mean by yourself is rather narrowly circumscribed. Even events that go on in our own bodies are put in the category of things that happen to us in the same way as things that go on in the world outside our skins. If there's a thunderstorm or an earthquake, well, it happens to you. You're not responsible for it. But so in the same way, when you have hiccups, you didn't plan on it. If you have belly rumbles, you had no intention of doing it. And as to the catastrophic act of getting born, well, you had nothing to do with that. And you can spend all your life blaming your parents for putting you in the situation in which you find yourself. And this uh, way of looking at the world in this sort of passive mood as something that happens to you goes right down to our general feeling about life. It goes down to the way in which, as Westerners, we have been accustomed to look at human existence as a precarious event in a cosmos that, uh, on the whole, is depicted as being completely Essential. unsympathetic Essential. and alien Essential. to our existence. In other words, if you're reared with a 20th century, or shall we say an early 20th century common sense, which is based on the philosophy of science of the 19th century, with its rejection of Christianity and Judaism, uh, you regard yourself as an accident, a biological accident, in a stupid universe, which is mechanical, but has no feelings, no finer feelings. A vast, pointless gyration of radioactive rocks and gas in which uh, you happen to occur. Because if you don't have that point of view and you are more traditional, you look upon yourself as a child of God. And therefore, under authority. In other words, there's a big boss on top of all this who allowed you at his pleasure Deign to have the disgusting effrontery to exist. And uh, you better watch your P's and Q's because that Almighty is looking after you. To the attitude of this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And uh, 
when you look at the world in that image or in the other image that it's a stupid mechanism. Either point of view you take, uh, you don't really belong. You are not really part of all this. And I could use a stronger word than part, only we don't have it in English. We have to say something like um, connected with it, essential to it. Uh, or to put it in the strongest possible way, it is quite alien to Western thought to conceive that the external world, which is defined as something that happens to you, and your body itself as something that you got caught up with, it is quite alien to our thought to consider all that as you yourself. Because, you see, we have such a myopic view of what oneself is. It's as if, in other words, we selected how much experience is really to be regarded as me. As if you focused your attention on certain restricted areas of the whole panorama of things that you experience and say, I will take sides with that much of it. Now, we come here right at the start to an extremely important principle, which is the different points of view you get when you change your level of magnification. That is to say, you can look at something with a microscope and see it a certain way. You can look at it with the naked eye and see it in a certain way. You can look at it with a telescope and you see it in another way. Now, which level of magnification is the correct one? Well, obviously, uh, they're all correct. They're just different points of view. You can, for example, look at a newspaper photograph under a magnifying glass. And where with the naked eye you will see a human face, the magnifying glass, you'll just see a profusion of dots, rather meaninglessly scattered. But as you stand away from that connection of dots, which all seem to be separate and apart from each other, they suddenly arrange themselves into a pattern. And you see that uh, these individual dots add up to some kind of sense. Now you'll see at once from this illustration that maybe you when you take a myopic view of yourself, as most of us do. But you may add up to some kind of sense. It is not apparent to you in your ordinary consciousness. When we examine our bloodstreams under a microscope, we see there's one hell of a fight going on. All sorts of microorganisms are chewing each other up. And if we got overly fascinated with our view of our own bloodstreams in the, mi in the microscope, we should start taking sides which would be fatal, because the health of our organism depends on the continuance of this battle. What is, in other words, conflict at one level of magnification is harmony at a higher level. Now, could it possibly be, therefore, that we, with all our problems, conflicts, neuroses, sicknesses, political outrages, wars, tortures, and everything that goes on in human life, are a state of conflict which can be seen in a larger perspective as a, as a situation of harmony. Well, it is claimed, you see, that some human beings have broken through to that vision.
that they've slipped somehow or other into states of consciousness where they see the apparent disintegration and disorganization of everyday life as the functioning of a totality which at its level is completely harmonious and you could say aha at last i see i got the point i've seen how all this makes sense but what this insight depended upon was your overcoming the illusion that space separates things that is to say the space the interval between your body and mine uh the uh interval created by birth at one end and death at the other and then after somebody's death then somebody else's birth uh these are events with intervals between them. and normally we regard these intervals in time these intervals in space as having no importance no function we tend to see the universe itself as really consisting in all the stars and galaxies that's what it is that's what we notice but the space in which all this happens is sort of written off as something that isn't really there but uh what one has to realize is that the space is an essential function of the things in the space after all you can't have separate stars unless there is a space around you eliminate the space and you will see you couldn't have this phenomenon at all and vice versa you couldn't have the space they wouldn't be there in any sense whatsoever if there weren't the bodies in it so the bodies in the space and the space are two aspects of a single continuum they're related together in exactly the same way as a back and a front and you just don't get one without the other so the moment you see that intervals that space is connected you can understand uh, at once how you are not just to be exclusively defined as a flash of consciousness that occurs between two eternal darknesses which is the popular common sense view which western man has of his own life that you consider that in the darkness that comes before your birth there was no you and in the eternal darkness that follows your death there is likewise no you and i'm going to discuss these matters not by appealing to any special spooky knowledge as if i had been traveling on the higher planes and knew all my previous incarnations and therefore could tell you authoritatively that uh, you are much more than this individuality i'm going to do it on a basis of complete common sense that everybody has access to the facts and that just what you have to realize is that life is a pattern of immense complexity and what you call yourself as a living organism say i am my whole body at the very least now what is that body that body is recognizable 
and I recognize my friends when I meet them again, with luck, and you recognize me. Uh, although the last time any of you saw me, I was absolutely something entirely different from what I am now. Just as the flame of a candle is never a constant. The flame of a candle is a stream of hot gas. Only you say the flame of the candle as if it were a constant. Well, it is a recognizably constant pattern. The spear-shaped outline of the flame and its coloration is a constant pattern. But in exactly the same way, we are all constant patterns. And that's all we are. The only thing constant about us at all is the doing rather than the being. It's the way we behave, the way we dance. Only there's no we that dances. It's just the dancing. Just as the flame is the streaming of hot gas, just as a whirlpool in a river is a whirling of streaming water. There is no thing that whirlpools. There is the whirlpool. And in the same way, each one of us is a very, very delightfully complex undulation of the energy of the whole universe. Only by our process of miseducation, we've been deprived of the knowledge of that fact. Uh, not as if uh, there was someone to blame for this, because it's always with our own tacit consent. Because life is basically a game of hide and seek. Uh, because life is pulsation. On and off. Here it is, and now it isn't. And by being this pulsation, we know it's there. See, uh, you, you don't know what you mean by on unless you know what you mean by off. That's why when we want to awaken someone, we knock at the door. Not enough to slam the door once with your fist and make a big noise. But you keep up a pulsation because that by its on and offness attracts attention. Uh, all life, you see, is this flickering in and out. Only there are enormous rhythms in it. There are very fast flickering ins and outs, like uh, the reaction of light upon our eyes, such that if I take a lighted cigarette in the dark and I spin it, you will see a circle of fire. Because the reflection of that cigarette uh, tip on your retina lasts, it endures. Just in the same way as on a radar screen, an image stays a little while until it's revivified by another round. So in that way, you see, you notice continuity. And in the same way, then, you notice the continuity of a light, because although, like, say, with an arc lamp, an arc lamp is actually a flickering light. And that's why they don't allow arc lights to be used in any shop where there's a circular saw. Because sometimes the flickering speed of the arc light so synchronizes with the turning speed of the teeth on the blade that the teeth look as if they're not moving. So anybody who might put his hand on the blade would have it chopped off thinking it was a still one. So in this way, very fast impulses are looked upon us as constant. And we see where there are fast impulses, a solid thing. When you look at the blade of a propeller or an electric fan, the separated four or three blades become a solid disc. And you cannot throw an egg through it. Well, so in exactly the same way, you can't put your finger through a rock. 
because the rock is moving too fast for your finger to go through. That's the meaning of the, the whole phenomenon of hardness. Hardness in nature is immense energy, but acting in a very concentrated space, restricted space, but going to beat hell. That's why you can't get through it. Now, from those very tiny fast rhythms, which give us the impression of continuity, there are also in this universe immensely slow rhythms. And these are very difficult for us to keep track of. And they impress us and depress us as our own life and death, as our coming and going, which goes for what is uh, to us such a slow pace that we can't possibly believe uh, that it is really a rhythm. We think of it uh, as our birth, as something quite unique that uh, could never occur again because we're so close to it, you see, and it's moving so slowly. And so with that point of view, uh, we are, like uh, Marshall McLuhan said, he borrowed another from me, which is that we are driving a car looking at the rear vision mirror. That means that the environment in which you believe yourself to exist is always a past one. It isn't the one you're actually in. The process of growth, the, the basic process of biology, is one in which lower orders are always being superseded by higher orders. But the lower order can never figure out or only very rarely figure out what the higher order is that's taking over. And they see it as a terrible threat, as total disaster, as the very end. But they can never be aware that the principle of growth always has and always will continue. Because that's what's going on. But you never know what the next step is going to be. Because if you did know, wouldn't take it, because it would already be passed. Do you understand this? That any suddenly known future is an event of which we can say, you've had it. And in that sense, it's past. When we play a games, and we say in chess or in a bridge or whatever game you're playing, the outcome of the game becomes certain. We at that point cancel the game and begin a new one. Because the whole zest of the thing which takes me back to the idea that this whole thing is a hide-and-seek game, is that you don't know what the next order coming up is. But one thing you can be sure of, it will be an order, and it will comprehend you. At the moment, we stand at a time in history where we're beginning to think of a great countdown on the end of the human race. Terrifying possibility that through atomic energy, uh, we may obliterate this planet and uh, turn the whole globe into a star. Maybe that's the way all the stars started. Imagine you know, this great thing coming up. The countdown on the end. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Where have you heard that before? You see?
sit on the seashore. And you hear the waves going in and out. And you don't stop to think. That's what you're doing. That's what the whole business is doing. There are places where the wave mounts and mounts, it gets too big for its boots or whatever, and it spills and breaks. We could do just that. But uh, very important to realize that's what you're doing, because then you don't get panicky about it. The person who's going to press that button is the person who's going to get panicked. So if you realize that that's what it is, and that uh, it doesn't really matter if the whole human race blows itself up, then there's a chance that it won't do it. Not to do this thing which attracts us like a kind of vertigo, like a person who looks over a precipice and is all set to throw himself over. Or a person who jumps out of a plane when they're skydiving and forgets to pull the parachute ring because he gets fascinated with a target. Or target fascination. He just goes straight at it. So we could get absolutely fascinated with that with disaster, with doom. Or, you know, all the news in the newspapers is invariably bad news. There is no good news in the newspaper. People wouldn't buy a newspaper good news. Even the free press is full of terrible news. Except the San Francisco Oracle. And uh, the, uh, the fascination, you see, for this doom uh, might be neutralized if we would say, well, Why bother about that? It's just a, another fluctuation in this huge, marvelous, endless chain of uh, our own selves and our own energy going on. See, here's the problem. Because of our myopia, because of our, the way we've, as it were, restricted consciousness to focus upon just that certain little area of experience that we call voluntary action. That's us. And everything else happens. Now, that's obviously absurd. Let's suppose you take in your hand one of those toys, a, a gyroscopic top, and you suddenly notice, the minute you get this in your hand, that it has a kind of vitality to it. It seems to resist you. It starts pushing you in a certain way, see? And sometimes you're with it and following it. Then sometimes you see it, it's just as if you held a living animal in your hand. You know, you pick up a a uh, hamster, you know, or a guinea pig. And you hold this little thing in your hand, it's always trying to escape. So the gyroscope always seems to be trying to escape your hold. Now in exactly the same way, what you're experiencing all the time, all sorts of things are getting out of control and doing things you don't expect. It's trying to escape your hold. All right, then don't grab it so hard. And you discover that this living, thing that you're feeling, like the gyroscope top, it's your own life. Because you can see very simply that you would not understand the experience that you call voluntary action and decision, being in control and being yourself, unless in opposition to that there was something else. You couldn't realize self and control and will unless there was something 
other, out of control, and instead of will, won't. It's the two together only that produces the sensation that you call having a personal identity. Only there is a funny thing about human consciousness which has been worked out very carefully in Gestalt psychology, which is that our attention is captured by the figure rather than the background, by the relatively enclosed area rather than the diffuse area, and by something moving rather than what is relatively still. And to all those phenomena that in this way attract our attention, we attribute a higher degree of reality than the ones we don't notice. That's only because, for the moment, those are more important to us. Consciousness, you see, is a radar that is scanning the environment to look out for trouble, just in the same way as a ship's radar is looking for rocks or other ships. And the radar, therefore, does not notice the vast areas of space where there are no rocks, no other ships. So in the same way, our eyes, or rather the selective consciousness behind the eyes, only pays attention to what we think is important. I am at this moment aware of all of you in this room, of every single detail of your clothing, of your faces and so on, but I'm not noticing you. Therefore, I will not be able to remember tomorrow exactly how each one of you looked and what you were wearing. Because what I notice is restricted to things that I think are particularly important. If I notice some particularly beautiful girl in the audience, then I might notice also what she's wearing. And uh, that would be memorable. But by and large, you see, we scan things over, but we pay attention only to what our set of values tells us we ought to pay attention to. But quite obviously, you as a complete individual are much more than the scanning system. You are in uh, relationships with the external world that on the whole are incredibly harmonious. And so in this way, we have this uh, rather myopic way of looking at things. And we screen out from attention uh, anything that is not immediately important to a scanning system based on sensing danger. But quite obviously, you as a complete individual are much more than the scanning system. You are in relationships with the external world that on the whole are incredibly harmonious. Going back to this illustration of every living body as something like the flame of a candle. The energies of life in the form of temperature, light, air, and food, and so on, are streaming through you all at this moment in the most magnificently harmonious way. And you're all of you far more beautiful than any candle flame. Just sitting in these chairs, just going. Only we are so used to it. We say about that, so what? Show me something interesting. Show me something new. Because it's a characteristic of consciousness 
that it ignores stimuli that are constant. When anything is constant, it says, okay, that's safe, it's in the bag, you needn't pay attention to that anymore. And therefore, we eliminate systematically from our awareness all the gorgeous things that are going on all the time and instead only become focused on the things, the troublesome things that might happen to upset it. Which is all right, but we make too much of it. And become, we make so much of it that we identify our very selves, I, ego, with the radar, with the troubleshooter. And that's only a tiny fragment of one's total being. So that if you do become aware that you are not simply that scanning mechanism, but you are your complete organism, then very swiftly, in turn, as a consequence of that, you become aware that your organism is not the way you think about it when you look at it from the standpoint of conscious attention, from the standpoint of the ego. From the standpoint of the ego, your organism is uh, your kind of vehicle, your automobile in which you go around. But from a physical point of view, your organism is again like the candle flame or the whirlpool. It is something which is a continuous patterning or activity of the whole cosmos. The key, the key idea here is pattern. Let's suppose uh, I'm going to borrow a metaphor from Buckminster Fuller. Suppose we have a rope. And one section of this rope is made of uh, manila hemp. The next section is cotton. The next section is silk. The next section is nylon and so on. Now we tie a knot in this rope, just an ordinary one over knot. And you find by putting your finger in the knot, you can move it all the way down the rope. Now, as this knot travels, it's first of all made of manila hemp, it's then made of cotton, it's then made of silk, it's then made of nylon and so on. But the knot keeps going on. That's the integrity of pattern, the continuing pattern, which is what you are. Because you might, you know, for several years you might be a vegetarian, and you might be a meat eater, and uh, so on, and you know, your constitution changes all the time, but people, your friends still recognize you, because you're still putting on the same show. It's the same pattern that is the recognizable individual. But we are trained in our language, the very structure of the language we talk deceives us into misunderstanding this. Because when we see a pattern, we ask, what's it made of? Like you see a table, is it made of wood or is it made of aluminum? But then when you inquire into what is wood, and how does wood differ from aluminum? The only thing a scientist can tell you is the different patterns. That is to say, the different molecular structure of the two things. And a molecular structure is not a description of what something is made of. It is a description of what dance it is performing. What motions, what kind of a symphony this is. Because basically, all phenomena of life are musical. And uh, gold differs from lead in exactly the same way that a waltz differs from a mazurka. It's a different dance. 
And there isn't anything that's dancing. That is a deception we get into because we have two parts of speech in our grammar. We have nouns and verbs. And verbs are supposed to describe the activities of nouns. And this is simply a convention of speech. You could have a language with only verbs in it. You don't need any nouns. Or you could also have a language with the nouns only and no verbs. And uh, it would perfectly adequately describe what's going on in the world. So if you were used to speaking with a, part, with a language that had one part of speech, uh, you could say just as much as we can with two and be a lot clearer. Only at first it would sound awkward, but you'd soon get used to it. And then when you got used to it, it would be a matter of common sense that the patterning of the world is not some kind of stuff that's patterned. You don't have to seek for a substance underlying things is patterned. And we're all that. And wherever you see patterning, you will see the principle that big fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them. Little fleas have lesser fleas and so ad infinitum. And then you reverse the process, see? Little fleas, in, in, infinite, infinitely little fleas, are always on the back of bigger fleas. And those bigger fleas are on the back of still bigger ones. And those bigger fleas on the back of still more whopping fleas, you see? It goes the other way too. And so in this way, uh, there is, to a person who really wakes up, you very soon realize that your existence is not something that is just the uh, hopeless little creature that's suddenly confronted with a great big external world that goes at him you know, and eats him up. Every tiniest little thing that comes into being, every minute little fruit fly or gnat or bacterium, I will go so far as to say is an event upon which this whole cosmos depends. This thing goes both ways. It's not only that every little organism which exists depends on its total environment. The reverse is also true, that the total environment depends on each and every one of those little organisms. So that you could say, this universe consists of a, an arrangement of pattern in which every event is essential to the whole thing. Now, we screen that idea out of our consciousness in exactly the same way that we screen out the perception of space as an important reality. Just as we pay attention to the figure and ignore the background, so we see one way of looking at things, namely that the organism is very frail against the environment. It lasts a long time, the environment, but the organism only lasts a short time. What do you mean the environment lasts a long time? What does the environment consist of? Just a lot of little things. And yet there is the environment just as the same way as there is the face in the newspaper photograph behind all those little dots. When you get far enough away from it, you see the face. When you get far enough away from all the organisms and the little bits of things, you see the environment in another scale of magnification. But actually, uh, the whole thing is arranged in a, a polar system. 
where the enormous depends on the tiny and the tiny depends on the enormous. And you get a relationship between these extremes which can be called a transaction. That is to say, a transaction when there's buying and selling. It's impossible to have buying without selling and selling without buying. They always go together. But of course, the person you see who's interested in buying thinks more about buying than he thinks about the other fellow selling. And if he does that, he's going to get a bad buy. Because he doesn't really think about the mechanisms the other fellow's using to sell. And if I want to sell something and think too much about selling, I don't enter sufficiently into the psychology of the buyer. So then I'm not a good, uh, not a good business shark. So in this way, we are always, as it were, over-emphasizing a certain aspect of our experience. And we say now, what is important about people? This is the great credo of the West. Is there unique individuality? And we have been given an immense psychic investment in our own individuality by our upbringing. What are you going to amount? What are you going to contribute to human life? What's your particular destiny going to be? It's a fine idea. But the thing we don't understand is that it won't work, this great idea, without being balanced with its opposite. Just as you can't have the back without the front. So you cannot have the values of a unique personality unless at the same time everybody recognizes that uh, there is another level at which we are not unique at all, but that I am you and you are I. That in other words, the so-called I that we all have, you see, every one of you feels that you're the center of the universe and that everything else is happening around you in a circle. You can turn around and uh, you can see sort of equally far in all directions, especially if you're in a ship in the middle of the ocean. So you're in the middle. And it's true from the standpoint of astronomy. We live in a curved space-time continuum. That is to say, in a universe in which every point may be regarded as the center. Consider a sphere. Here's a ball. What point on this ball is the center of its surface? see at once that any point can be the center of this. So legitimately, all points in the universe are the center. That's St. Bonaventure's description of God. That circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. So everybody's in that situation. And at that depth of your existence, we are all like um, the nerve ends on your own skin. See, at every point on your skin, there's a little nerve end going peek and getting information from the outside world. Another and another and another, all over. And they all constitute your total sensitivity. Well, so in the same way, and all these people sitting around here, with their little eyes, Things they're going speak, and they're all really one common center called I, which is looking at itself from ever so many different points of view. Only we are so close to it, and we are so absorbed in the different ways each one of them is doing, that we neglect 
to the community underneath. Just like when you've uh, never seen Chinese people before and you go into a bunch of Chinese people, you can't tell the difference between them. You think, well, all Chinese look the same. Well, the Chinese, when they first saw us, they thought we all looked the same. We all had red hair and long noses. And uh, then when you get to know when I, you know, I live in Japan for a week, two weeks, three weeks, and suddenly all the Japanese start turning into people. And they, 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 they look like, they, they don't look Japanese anymore, they just look like people. They're all different. See? As you get to a certain level, then all the individuality comes up. Uh, so, if, if in other words, someone from an entirely different form of biology came to this planet and looked at us, he wouldn't know the difference between Negroes, the Greeks, Armenians, and uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Uh, they would all look to him exactly the same. And he would see us as, uh, in other words, he'd look at a group like this here and he would call it a thing. You know, just you see a set of false teeth and they all are pretty much alike and you say well that's a set of false teeth so you see a set of people sitting around and uh, say well that's a, that's a thing it's like a caterpillar with so many legs on it you know? well, it breaks up and uh, reforms and so on rather interesting like hydras you know you can take hydras and put them in an osterizer having taught no flatworms excuse me you take flatworms and you can teach them certain tricks and then you put them in an osterizer and uh, pulverize them then they reform themselves and they know the tricks you taught them. And you can mix up those who do and those who don't. And those who do learn the tricks that can convey it to the new ones uh, that didn't know them. See? So that maybe one day we can um, get some DNA from uh, genius people and feed it to people who don't know anything. And immediately they learn these tricks. Think of that. But the, the meaning of all that, talking about DNA and asterized flatworms, is that um, what is transmitted all the time is the repetition of pattern, the repetition of certain rhythms. And that this whole uh, rhythmic system may be looked at in this way. Let's just take any pattern. Uh, we, we can form a pattern, say, of um, like this. See? I make a kind of a loop end, a loop ended cross in the air. Now, let's consider what is the problem involved in analyzing that pattern into smaller parts. Uh, shall I say each one of these loops is a part? There are four parts, therefore, to the pattern. Well, where does a loop begin and end? Just excuse me, let's look at it another way. I could say that not this was a part, but this was a part of the pattern. There were four of those. Uh, you should all study, incidentally, the drawings of a great Dutch artist by the name of Escher, whose uh, work appeared a little while ago in the Scientific American, but he has a book of the most fantastic patterns where you will see, for example, an arrangement of devils. And when you look at the background, it's an arrangement of angels. That everything goes with its counterpoint. So that when you look at one of Escher's pictures, you 
don't know which is the foreground and which is the background. You just flip, 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 and you can have it either way. Well, everything's like that. Only because, as I said, we are fascinated with what we have at the moment selected as the foreground. We say, for! Foreground! It comes before. It's important. That's what's there, the background. Oh, that's just background, you see? Supposing you suddenly do a flip on that, and you realize the foreground, yeah, it's kind of close, but as we say of people, you could only see the trees, you can't see the forest. Like businessmen who say they're very practical, but they're very short-sighted, and don't know what's good for them. They put themselves out of their business regularly, so they have to start wars in order to carry on business. And, uh, you know, that's stupid. So you, you always, wherever you are looking at the general panorama of sensory experience, try switching. Try shifting your attention to all the things you thought were unimportant, to the consequence, to the background. And begin looking at the spaces between people. Uh, all painters have to learn this. Because especially if you're working in oils, you actually have to paint in the background. Weavers know this. Because when they're making patterns in weaving, they've got to weave the background as well. Or if you do needlepoint with embroidery, think of the hours you spend putting in the background over the canvas and wool. You become aware of it. Same way the people who made the, the great oriental carpets. They're much more aware of the background as constituting an essential part of the total experience. So, as you uh, become aware of this, you will see the same thing that you notice in music. Namely, that it is only as a result of hearing the interval between tones that you hear any melody. If you don't hear the interval, you're tone deaf, and all notes are the same noise. All you hear is rhythm. You don't hear any melody. You've got to hear the interval. So then watch the intervals between people. The things that aren't said. The things that are tacit. The things that are implicit rather than explicit in all life. And then you begin to get um, connected. You know, it's very important to have a connection in life. And um, to be in the know. And uh, this is the way it, it, it fundamentally comes out of seeing the thing you forgot. You know, you can always bug people in a beautiful way, in a very helpful way, by just saying to them, Well, I don't know, uh, what was I supposed to remember? Oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm really not trying to put you on. Uh, I mean, it's not difficult. This is something completely obvious that you forgot. You'd easily remember it, because it's so obvious. Well, that's the hardest thing in the world to think of. What's the most obvious thing I've forgotten? Well, who do you think you are? Well, how do you answer that question? Who are you? Well, you give a name. That's what people told you. They put that name on you. They taught you to identify with it and to behave as it was expected to behave. 
that's not who you are. You know very well. Go back in your memory. Go back into your infancy before they started telling you. get with that, you'll know very well. The jolly old ancient of days. Only there's a conspiracy that you mustn't know. Because everybody is. And uh, if one person realizes it, the other's a little bit offended. They say, well, how come you're so great? Allowing just one individual to be recognized as the God And uh, nobody else, therefore, could be. And since he had been safely crucified, whisked up to heaven, uh, he wouldn't bother us anymore. So everybody, therefore, who gets an intimation of who they really are, and never comes out with it in the Christian civilization. People say, who the hell do you think you are? You Jesus Christ? Or you can say Jesus Christ said he was Jesus Christ and everybody put him down for it and that's what you're doing to me. Oh, they say forget that one. Because uh, it's like uh, somebody comes out and composes some perfectly terrible music. The critics say this man is a cacophonist. He is completely incompetent. And he said, did you read the reviews of Beethoven's first symphony when it was performed at Vienna? Now the thing is, <laughs> we allowed one person, you see, one human individual, to be the incarnate God. Because we have all been living in a theory of the universe, in which the individual is simply involved in something that happens to him. And we feel that this thing that happens to us is reality. It is facts that we have to face and accept and cope with. See? It's always something other than you. You don't recognize it as an integral part of your own being. Without which you cannot know what you mean by the word I. But in the truth of the matter is, though, that if uh, you will face it out, Every single one of us knows that that isn't true. There is a, an, as it were, a recess of the soul, of the psyche, where everybody knows perfectly well that you are not just this irresponsible little mouse that's been chucked down into this world, but that you are really doing this work. You're running it. Only you can't admit it just in the same way as you can't admit that you're responsible for the way your own heart beats. You say, oh, that's not my doing. I have no control over my heart. Do you have any control over being conscious? Do you know how you will? You say, I intend to take my hand down from my face and put it on my leg. I can do that, but I don't know how to have it done. So that what we mean by the capacity of voluntary control in the ordinary sense of the word is 
we don't understand it at all. So you might say, in, in a funny backwards way, that the only kind of control you really understand is that way you're not using your will. Because you just do it. So easy, like you open and close your hand. You know how to do it? Sure you know how to do it. But you can't put it into words and explain to someone how to do it. You say, well, come on, aren't you human? Don't you know how to open and close your hands? Do it, silly. But we don't realize, you see, that just as we know how to do this, we know equally well how to turn the sun into light, how to blow the sky, how to blow the wind, how to wave the, the ocean, how to um, digest food, and um, I might add, to be digested by bacteria and transformed. As we transform our steaks, uh, we will in turn be transformed. Uh, but the uh, pattern keeps going. And it's always you. Only you see you have this marvelous capacity to transform yourself without knowing that you're doing it. Therefore, you keep surprising yourself. And therefore, you keep on doing it. Because if you didn't surprise yourself, you wouldn't go, you wouldn't go on doing it. It's just the very fact, you see, that you seem to be the victims of a thing you don't understand, and that you seem to conclude your life every time in a wipeout called death, where all your control goes. It's just exactly that opposite condition to what you call being alive that allows you to be alive. Only every time it happens, it's like it's new. It's like every time you're born, it seems like it was the only time. But of course, if it wasn't like that,